You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Stevie Wonder released the very best album of his career. <laughs> it's an inside joke, don't worry. <laughs> All right. It was a double album of 21 songs it took two and a half years to make. Back in 1976, the album took 130 people and $13 million. Well, this week I went to the U.S. inflation calculator, which you can find on the internet. And I figured out that $13 million in 1976 equals $70 million today. So it took Stevie Wonder $70 million to produce probably the best popular music album of all time. Shortly before recording this album, Stevie was down in the ditches creatively and personally. Didn't know if he wanted to continue in music, but Barry Gordy, the CEO of Motown Records, offered him the deal of a lifetime and wanted him to, to do this momentous album. And initially, Stevie called it, Let's See Life the Way It Is. And the final title of the album came to him in a dream, Songs in the Key of Life. For him, as a songwriter and performer, this album was a personal challenge to see the whole scope of life and write songs through it. So there are so many topics on the album, if you go back and listen through it, which you're required to do as a member of Grace Mosaic, at least. So if you haven't done that, you better go do it. There's a song about... Love. There's songs about prayer. There's songs about ghetto poverty and injustice. There's songs about honoring musicians of old and remembering bygone days. There's songs about loss and pain, but also beauty and the afterlife. Songs in the Key of Life speaks to the great diversity of human experience. And that's why perhaps Rolling Stone said just recently that four decades have failed to dole the album's power and awe-inspiring scope. Well, in ancient Israel, King David, Asaph, the sons of Korah, and many other unknown liturgical artists, inspired by the Holy Spirit, released the very best album of their careers. It was a massive collection of 150 psalms, or songs, a hymn book that served as the material for worship and formation for all of God's people, up until now, to this very day. See, because in the Exodus, the Lord had made Israel the deal of a lifetime when they were down in the ditches. And it resulted in this project, in a liturgical collection that helped God's people see life the way it is under the sovereign lordship of Yahweh. And it's fair to say that you could call the Psalter songs in the key of life because the Psalter contains songs about love, about prayer, about poverty and injustice, about Saints of old and longing for bygone days, they wrote psalms of lament and loss and pain, but also amazingly joyous psalms of praise to the Lord. They wrote psalms about unity and diversity, about beauty and the renewed, healed world to come. See, they speak into the great diversity of human experience, and that, that's why as we bring the phrase back, you could say that thousands of years have failed to dull the power of this album of the psalms. Here's one thing I can say with certainty, that for an ancient Jewish man, girl, boy, uh, girl or boy, the songs were the soundtrack of life in this world, from the womb to the tomb. The psalms were the soundtrack and songbook for Jesus Christ. 
And up until very recently in history, the Psalms have been the universal soundtrack of Christians throughout time and place, singing and chanting the Psalms. That's why we're trying to refresh that practice here at Grace Mosaic, one step at a time. These songs are to be like the holy mixtape or hymn book that accompanies us throughout all of our life in the various circumstances of our life. Even as I consider my life as a pastor and liturgist over the years, here's what I can reflect on. I can remember funerals for newborns, for two-year-olds, for 20-year-olds, for 96-year-olds. And there's been one song that's been accompanying them all. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There have been moments of great lament over injustice, crying out, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. There have been high moments of praise and dancing and shouting, like Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. But yet there have been moments of pandemic exile from the sanctuary, reflected by the very next psalm, Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon we wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Do you see that? The Psalms are God's great gift to us that allow us to explore all of the words and postures and emotions that we encounter in a beautiful, but in also in a broken world, and work them out in God's presence with his permission. Unlike many people in our world, God doesn't shut down difficult emotions or emotions he's uncomfortable with. Stop being so happy. Don't be silly. Don't be joyous. Stop being so sad. Put a smile on your face. God doesn't do that. God doesn't shut down our emotional life. Instead, like a key, God gives the Psalms to unlock our hearts and our emotional life in his presence, even the Psalms that disturb us. Maybe you were disturbed by the Psalm even today. And perhaps if the Psalms disturb us, it just means we haven't yet gotten to that emotional posture where those Psalms have unlocked those emotions within us. This summer, we'll be working through volume two of Songs in the Key of Life as we want to develop a more healthy and well-rounded spirituality in God's presence. So it's my joy today to briefly explore Psalm 92, which is a classic psalm of praise, which has a lot in common with the very first psalm, Psalm 1. And as, I've all, as I'm often going to phrase it this summer, I want to give us two postures to practice in this song. First, the posture of adoration. And secondly, the posture of abiding. So first, the posture of adoration. For most of the psalms, we are not sure how that, this or that psalm was used in the worship of Israel. Some of them very rarely have a title, and this is one of them. This is Psalm 92, a song for the Sabbath, is what it says. And the Sabbath, of course, is Israel's day of rest and worship. It was a day for Israel to cease from the work of their hands so that they could celebrate the work of God's hands. To have a day to bring offerings, to bring themselves to the temple and sing songs of praise at morning all the way into the evening. And that's why it says the day is marked by remembering God's covenant-keeping, promise-keeping love in the morning and God's faithfulness to that love at night. What would our days be marked by if we began bathed in the morning with God's covenant love and put to bed in the evening by his faithfulness. 
That's what the Psalms are for. See, the whole Psalm, as we will see, is a Psalm for the church. It describes the beauty and necessity of worshiping with God's people, of being rooted in God's courts, his house. It pictures a life of flourishing where God's people are grounded not principally in their own spiritual, spiritual expression, but are planted and founded where? In the courts of God, in the church, according to Psalm 92. The psalmist said, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to the music of the lute and the harp, the melody of the lyre. It is good, right, is the phrase. And it is not the casual English, it is good, like, hey, what you want for dinner? You want Thai food? Yeah, that's good. Mm-mm, no. Good is on the very first page of the Bible. I need to remind you. Tov in Hebrew, when God looks out over all that he has made, from fish to sea to mountain to bird to human being, and he says, it is very good. It is tov. It is pleasant, delightful, delicious, sweet, savory, acceptable, joyful, vigorous. The posture of the adoration of God is, is grounded in the posture of thanksgiving. It is the fundamental posture of what did I do to earn the breath that's in my lungs this morning? Nothing. What did I do to merit my own birth out my mama's womb? Nothing. What did I do to make the earth so that it could produce food from seeds and animals and mountains and trees and birds? Nothing. Life is a gift. There is a giver. There is a maker. You are not the giver. You are not the maker. You are made. You are created ones. And that's why the psalm first grounds the people of God in a fundamental posture of thanksgiving and reception. The psalmist says, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Again, with this being a Sabbath song, the people have been commanded to rest from their work, of their hands. And yet again, remember that all of life, all of the gifts of our life flow from the very hands of the work of God. What work? Creation? Yes. What work? Salvation? Yes. All of it. God is creator. God is redeemer. God is rescuer. And that's why the people are commanded to come and have this fundamental posture of thanksgiving. And that's why the psalm explores, though, the corollary, the opposition of this posture, which is foolishness. And foolishness in the Bible is grounded in a fundamental posture of ingratitude. The psalmist says the stupid man cannot know the fool, cannot understand this. And what's in view in the wisdom literature and the psalms of the Bible when, when it says stupid and foolish, it has nothing to do with mental capacity. It has nothing to do with people's intellect. It has to do with people's use of their intellect. If you refuse to use your mind to be in awe of the obvious truth that you are a created being in a created universe, wholly dependent upon something beside yourself for all of life and flourishing, if you twist your mind instead and look at yourself as the arbiter of your fate, or as the author of your life or your creation. It's foolish. It doesn't make any sense. And that's why Paul will say later in Romans 1 that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark, darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creatures and creeping things. So see what the Psalms tell you over and over again is you have a fundamental choice in life. Will you worship the creator or will you worship the created? And the Psalms want to return us to a posture of there is a creator and I want to worship him. And this posture, as Russ beautifully, Pastor Russ beautifully talked about earlier, how is this posture embodied? How is gratitude embodied through a song of thanksgiving? The psalmist said to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Hear this, that in the worship of God's people, singing is not optional, according to the psalm. Singing is not for the singers. When God made humanity, God made a singing creature. Now think of children. Even before we teach children how to speak, what do we teach them to do? We, we teach them to sing. The wheels on the bus go round and round. <laughs> Why do we do that? Because it unlocks their fundamental humanity. That's what we want to do. That's what we're made to do. Out of this amazing process within our bodies of, of the breath of our lungs moving through up to our vocal cords, to our articulators, the parts of our vocal tract above the larynx, including the palate, the tongue, the cheek, the teeth, the lips, all the way through the resonators, right? The chest, the throat, the nasal cavities. What is singing? I mean, it is so mysterious, but it's part of what it means to be a human being that God made. Singing is not ancillary. It's not peripheral to human experience. To be human is to sing. And God wants to hear your song, even if it's a song of praise or it's a song of pain. Mm. And the mysterious act of living that out is just part of our created design to live in God's presence. I maybe think that Adam and Eve sang first before they even talked to God because they maybe heard the birds sing and they copied it. But listen, so, so song is the principal expression and it's not optional. And in fact, praise throughout the book of Psalms is commanded by God. Praise the Lord is a combination of a Hebrew verb, as I like to say, hallelujah, y'all better praise, Yah, Yahweh. Y'all better praise Yahweh. It's an imperative verb, and it, and it occurs 90 times in the book of Psalms, 23 times in Psalm 146 through 150 alone. Sing to the Lord. It occurs 27 times. Bless the Lord. Occurs 74 times. Shout, dance, give thanks. See, we think worship is supposed to arise from the sensation of our feelings in God's presence. But God says, no, I'm going to give you a command to liberate you into the life of singing and praise that you were made for. Eugene Peterson said, we think that worship arises from our feelings. But if Christians worshiped only when they felt like it, there would be precious little worship that ever went on. Worship is a command in the Bible. Because joylessness and ingratitude and praiselessness in God's presence is a sin. Now, so is refusal to weep. So is refusal to mourn, even with your own heart. Yes. So is a refusal to mourn your own sin. Yes. But let me tell you something. I've been, I've been a part of, of Christian communities who like to emphasize the somber emotional expression of the Psalms. That's good. But they often do so to the detriment of the liberating, joyous acts of praise in the book of Psalms. 
people have claimed to want to resist a manipulative atmosphere of worship by making sure no one gets too overly excited or worshipful out here. Because, you know, somber, still, and stony expression is what it means to be in a, God, in a holy God's presence, they say. But if that's your only understanding of praise, then it doesn't work in the book of Psalms. Because evidently, when we're in the presence of God in the book of Psalms, God likes to see dancing. God likes to see clapping and partying in the maker's presence. And ultimately, environments that exclude the worshipful postures are just as manipulative as other environments. You see, worship is always manipulative. It is just a question of how you're being manipulated. To use the word very technically, the Psalms are manipulative. But, because they tell you to do things with your body, your mind, and your heart. They manipulate you, but it's a holy manipulation. It's God's manipulation to liberate you towards freedom, towards love, towards the things that actually cause you to flourish in life. And if our lives are not characterized by that posture of joyful praise, then we need to practice this song, Song 92. We need to practice Psalm 150. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Bang on some loud cymbals, blow some loud trumpets, and praise the Lord. All right, to further illustrate this, let me, let me mix metaphors a little bit. We're talking a lot about song, but I think another principal metaphor that helps us to understand the Psalms is that a physical exercise, all right? Update, I've been doing yoga now for a year and a half, all right? Russ just laughs at me every time I give a yoga illustration. And, it's, and the, the kind of yoga I do is 26 postures, two times, 90 minutes. It's the same every time. You don't walk into the workout going, what am I going to do today? Is it leg day? Is it bicep day? Nope. Yoga is just the same 26 postures done two times. And here's what I found. When I began the practice of yoga, I would be sitting there in my workout, and the instructor would tell you to, to get into a posture, and then she would say, now eventually your forehead's going to touch your knee. And I would be like, uh, yeah, that's never going to happen. <laughs> my body is not going to get into that posture. But here I am, a year and a half later, what I've done is I've engaged the same postures over and over again, and my practice has gotten deepened, and all of a sudden my body's doing things that I wouldn't have considered possible a year and a half ago. This is a general principle of wisdom. That's why Ambrose of Milan called the Psalter a gymnasium for the soul. That's why we call it Songs in the Key of Life. Because if you engage these 150 postures and you practice them regularly, you will find that all of a sudden your soul can stretch out in ways that it couldn't before. You find yourself having a muscle you didn't have before. And when something good happens in life, you just say, praise God, because you've practiced it. Or when something horrible happens in life, you don't minimize your horrible emotion. You're able to go there in the moment because that muscle has gotten strengthened. You hear what I'm saying? And the wisdom of Holy Scripture and the wisdom of God's gift to us in the Psalms is you need those postures if you're going to get strong. But like yoga, I don't practice yoga alone. I don't stream it over YouTube and hope that I get stronger. I go to the yoga studio and I have an instructor who says, hey, bend your knee a little bit more there. Hey, straighten up your back. You can go further. And then I have people all around me who have been practicing yoga for a long time. And I look over there, I'm like, oh, dang, she's advanced. <laughs> That's the worship of the church, too. 
I need to be surrounded by saints who have worshiped God and have gone through some stuff so that when I go through my stuff, I'm not a, I don't feel like I'm alone. I can see, oh, that person suffered over there, but all of a sudden she's, she's praising God because she's worked that muscle. <laughs> That's what the sanctuary is. It's a yoga studio. Y'all didn't know it. Oh, man. So we got to practice the postures of praise. That's what we're going to be exploring this summer. But to move into my second point, that life of praise, as beautiful, as inspiring and joyful as it is, takes place in a context. And it takes place in the context of a real broken world of evil, of foolishness, and of wickedness. And the psalmist, evidently, whoever he or she is writing this psalm, is struggling with that evil in their own life, like so many of the Psalms. They got an enemy. They got enemies out there. We don't know exactly what the situation is. And in response to that, there, there is a posture, the next posture to practice, and that's the posture of abiding in God. The psalmist is going to close it out. And again, we don't know what that psalmist has been dealing with. Maybe they've been lied on. Maybe there's someone who has a position of power and people are trying to malign them or maybe even kill them. Can you imagine what it feels like to be hunted by someone who actually wants your life? That's a lot of the Psalms. No wonder we have a struggle connecting with them. But Christians across the world who have been persecuted to the point of death, they know what the imprecatory Psalms are about. They know what it's like to have someone hunt for, uh, just hunt them for fun. The psalmist says, though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. You, Lord, are on high forever. Behold, your enemies, Lord, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. The psalmist, to illustrate this point of abiding, is going to give us two agricultural metaphors. What the psalms are often doing is they're looking at the created world that they live in, and they're looking at God's story, and they're making those two things talk to one another. God's first book of creation and God's second book of scripture and redemption, and they're saying, how does the first book inform the second book? The first image that the, salt, the psalmist gives us is the image of a quick-growing invasive species of grass or weed. Any gardener or farmer from advanced to beginner knows that invasive species grow very quickly and crowd out the crops you are trying to grow. I came back from two weeks of, of being on vacation at the house just this past week, and my garden had a lot of grass, and it had a lot of weeds in it. Because they grow quickly, but listen, their lifespan is short. And once winter comes, those weeds will not last. They will disappear from the face of the earth. That's the image that the Psalms gives us, as it will often, of those who refuse to live in gratitude to God, who refuse to live in light of what God has made plain and how we are supposed to live and instead are ruled by their own selfish appetites who damage God's creation, who persecute God's people. And in, in the wisdom literature of the Bible and the, and the rest of the Bible holds up this contrasting image of humanity. Those who, those, who are worship, those who worship God and live in light of his covenant love, and those who rebel refuse the rule and reign of the loving God. And like all the stark images of the Bible, we're going to need to get this when it says the righteous and the wicked it poses a question to us, what posture are we living in? Are we living in righteousness or wickedness? Because, listen, the righteous within the Bible are not perfect. 
Righteous does not mean perfect. Somebody say that. Because I need to remind you who wrote the majority of the Psalms. It was a guy named David. And David was not perfect. A righteous person knows the love of God. A righteous person wakes up knowing that God has a a faithful covenant-keeping love. And it asks us to live in line with God's kingdom. So the righteous are those who celebrate God's grace, who celebrate God's love, and who live in light of that beauty. The fool refuses those things. And to follow the path of foolishness is to follow the path to your own destruction, says the scripture, and says our obvious experience as human beings. But then there's this contrasting image of the righteous. Instead of weeds and seasonal plants and invasive species, the righteous flourish like a palm tree. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Listen to this. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. The image here has moved from an invasive grass or weed to that of two majestic trees, revered trees in the ancient world. First, there is the date palm tree. It was an ancient symbol in many cultures of a tree of life. It was revered by cultures all across the ancient Near East. It was a stately and elegant and a fruitful tree. And then you have the mighty cedars of Lebanon, which were famous old growth, large trees that provided wood for building uh, famously Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. Got the cedars of Lebanon. And so the image here is one of old growth, well-rooted, established, perennial, with a presence that blesses other creatures in the world. Notice how the metaphors get mixed here. Forest or grove is combined with church or temple. And these trees, the psalm says, are literally transplanted in the temple. Like you would take a little seedling and transplant it into a pot or a plot of land. The same verb. And they flourish. Same word that was used before of the wicked. Here we have it of the righteous. They flourish in the courts of our God. The image here is the image of God as a master gardener who takes his people by his own grace and transplants them into his house, waters them, nourishes them, watch them grow and flourish. And unlike the life cycle of, weed, a date, uh, of weeds, a date palm is perennial. It lasts through all of winter. Winter will not destroy it. Weather will not destroy it. No matter what that plant goes through, it still stands strong. And not only that, it says the trees still bear fruit in old age. All right? (laughs) They are ever full of sap and green. Literally, in the Hebrew, they are fat with sap. All right? This is a song that inspires us towards the vision of the church. There, I might say that it makes us think of our own little community here, where there are those by age who are little seedlings and little saplings who are being nurtured and are growing up into some fruitful trees, stately and rooted, or maybe those who came to be planted later in life, but are becoming established and fruitful in their life. Or maybe some of y'all saints in the room who have had some time to grow and are now well-established. I'm not going to say old growth because you're not, you're not lifeless. You're not tired. You're full of sap. You're fat with sap. You know what I'm saying? Any healthy forest needs old growth trees and any healthy community needs those who have been seasoned and who are still fruitful. 
full of sap and fruit and fruitfulness and blessing. Don't you like that image? The psalm, this psalm teaches us something so important about the kingdom of God, that there is a spiritual and real trajectory for development and growth. The spiritual life has a trajectory just as the physical, biological life. But we all know, sadly, you can grow old biologically, but not, but not grow wise or loving or just in your soul with a deeper communion with God. We, we all know people over the age of 60 who, though they are old, they can't hold a candle to the wisdom of some of our five-year-olds here in this community. You can grow in many ways. It's just a question of how you're going to flourish and what direction are you going to flourish? Are you going to flourish in fleeting ways like the weeds or grass, pride, income, reputation, keeping up with fill in the blank? Psalm 92 says if you want to pursue a fruitful life, sink your roots deep into the church. Sink your roots deep into the life of God's community. Plant yourself in this community. Psalm 92 has made me ask as I close, where am I? Am I a seedling? Am I a sapling? Am I an established tree? I don't think I'm old growth. Is my life fruitful? Well, yes and no. Because here's the truth. We are all on a journey, and it's a journey we didn't start. By God's grace, if we know the Lord, we have been transplanted into his house. It's a journey that takes time like all good gardens or tree groves do. It takes pruning and fertilizing and water and sun. Growth is often slow. But the whole book of Psalms lead us to follow another psalmist who's gone ahead of us. The psalmist closes with the one who is our rock and in whom there is no unrighteousness. And when we move to the New Testament, we find that Psalms are carried over so forcefully by all the writers of the New Testament, by Jesus himself. And it's not just that Jesus as the perfect psalmist, had a few verses quoted about him that he was some fulfillment of, though that did take place. It's not just that Jesus sang the psalms, which he did, or here's the thing. The way that Jesus embodies the psalms is that he lived all of the psalms. <laughs> the way that Jesus embodied the psalms is that he died all of the psalms. All of the psalms of betrayal and of the laments of life and the pain and the need for forgiveness, Jesus dies the Psalms. And it's not just that Jesus died the Psalms, Jesus rose the Psalms. The Psalms of victory, the Psalms of ascension, the Psalms that celebrate a divine king who has conquered everything. Jesus is embodied in that Psalm. The Psalms of healing and restoration, of making all things new. Jesus lived the Psalms in all of their fullness. And all of the goodness and the gratitude and the adoration and the lament and the pain. You see, all of these things that the Psalms invite us to lead us to the one who within his own experience stood between God and human beings. And lived out the full emotional expression of God on our behalf. And became a sacrifice for us. So as we explore the Psalms this summer, we remember God's grace to us in giving them us. Uh, giving them to us as a gift, but we also remember that we celebrate and worship one who has come and lived out the entirety of the story of God, reflected in the Psalms, and has done so on our behalf. We follow him. Amen. Amen.
Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.com.